You're listening to a CNA podcast. Have you ever heard of the Belt and Road Initiative? Sorry, what? The Belt and Road Initiative. Belt and Road. Oh, yeah. it's a, it's a Chinese policy, right? Yeah, I heard about that, but not sure what's really what it is. What you just heard was CNA correspondent Olivia Siong asking a man in Mongolia what he knows about the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. Not much. Uh, you can't blame him, though. Even though the trillion-dollar project is promising major changes to Mongolia, among other nations, it's not clear for all to see. I'm Teresa Tang. Welcome to the final part of a special three-part series on the Belt and Road Initiative. This year marks the ambitious plan's 10th anniversary. Olivia spent close to two weeks traveling Mongolia and its border area with China and joins me now to talk about whether the BRI has lived up to its promises in the country, dubbed the land of the eternal blue sky. Hi, Olivia. So good to see you. Good to see you, too. So I have to tell you straight up, I'm so envious that you got to spend time in Mongolia. It's an absolutely stunning country. A podcast doesn't do it justice, right? Yeah, I have to say for this piece, the visuals were really quite something. The scenery landscape was truly breathtaking. You have to go if you <laughs> yeah, get I the know. opportunity. <laughs> but I think this will definitely be one of the more memorable assignments that I will remember for a very long time to come. And I mean, the whole premise of this series was to see, you know, how much progress the Belt and Road Initiative has made in the past decade and how countries that have signed on to it, this Chinese initiative, have been impacted. And reporting from China, where I'm based in Beijing, we talk about the BRI, how this is an ambitious infrastructure project mm-hmm. of China's building roads, railways, ports to link China and Asia with Europe, Africa. And it has involved over 100 countries in this past decade. So we knew the scale was huge, but reading or talking about it from afar and seeing it firsthand is definitely something else. And people might ask, oh, why Mongolia out of all the countries Mm. part of the BRI? Well, Mongolia we chose because of its unique geographical location. There's so much attention given to Mongolia's two giant neighbours. It's only physical neighbours, in fact. China to the south and Russia to the north. So Mm. it's sandwiched between these two juggernaut countries. Mongolia is one of the world's largest landlocked countries, heavily dependent on trading its mineral exports with its neighbours. And under the BRI, it was meant to be a key transport corridor. So we really wanted to see how that's shaping up firsthand. Mm. It's actually kind of funny, right? Because you went from an incredibly densely populated country, China, to the world's most sparsely populated. And it's also massive. It's vast. What challenges did you and your team face? Yeah, vast has a new definition for me (laughs) after this trip. You know, during the planning part for this project, we were working with our assistant producer, Naomi, in Mongolia. And she told us that, you know, the places you want to go to are not only going to be far away, but this drive is going to be difficult because we were trying to get to these BRI projects and railways in the south of Mongolia, in the Gobi Desert, towards the border with China. And we were mentally prepared for this, that it was not going to be easy, but I must say it was also beyond our expectations. So we flew two and a half hours from Beijing to Mongolia's capital, Ulaanbaatar. Then we drove about 450 kilometers or about six hours to another city, 
Saint-Shan. And from there, we spent the night. And then in the early hours of the next morning, we continued driving to a town called Hangi on the China-Mongolia border. And that's where one of the new BRI railways ran to. But the road conditions, we were warned, were not great. In fact, there weren't any roads for a large part of the journey. That there were went no on. roads? No roads <laughs> at all. And we were driving for, it must be 8 to 10 hours. I oh can't even gosh. tell you how far we drove for because... I can actually show you here. I took a screenshot. I mean, we'll describe it for the listeners. But, you know, when you put the two locations into Google Maps, it says... You can't find a way there? Google Maps can't even find it? Yeah, because, you know, I was just thinking, how is this going to work? (laughs) You know, there is no path. So we just had to get going, driving through the vast, sandy Gobi Desert, following the tracks left by other vehicles. And these are unpaved paths, some with potholes, mud, loose sand. Just imagine at times we didn't see any other vehicles for a long period of time and we will have to stop at a nearby town uh, or village when we saw people or a passing truck because these locals know the way to the destination. And we just had to check, keep on checking whether or not we were on the right track. At one point, we even had to take out the compass (laughs) on our phone. I've never really had to use this app before (laughs) to check we were going in the right direction southwards. So, and the other thing we had to think about was safety. That's a top priority because we wanted to avoid driving in the dark at night because it's pitch black. And that's how you also can get lost very easily because there are no road signs, barely any road signs, in fact. So the worst case scenario, our local driver and our producer, they told us, don't worry, we've packed a tent. <laughs> if we can't find a place to stay the night, that's going to be the backup plan. <laughs> and we managed to find our way. But this uncertainty also affected our interviews because long drives made the timing unpredictable. We oh. couldn't really tell how long we would take to find the spot where the interviewees were. Also, there was no phone reception for large parts of the journey. So we couldn't even call or contact them at times. For example, herders, nomads, they they don't have a landmark you can kind of see to know where to find them. Quite the journey. And I'm not going to ask you about the washroom situation, though I'm curious. Maybe uh, I'll ask you off air. There's something about <laughs> the great outdoors, you know. <laughs> okay. uh, now, we opened this episode with a clip of a guy you met on the street in the capital in Mongolia. And he didn't have any real understanding of the BRI. There's a lack of public awareness, isn't there? Yeah, I was really curious about this because after all, the BRI has been around for 10 years. Mm. How did people feel about it and towards China? But we spoke to several people. We heard that gentleman in Ulaanbaatar, the capital. We spoke to working professionals, young people, older people. We also spoke to those at the China-Mongolia border in Hangi, where we were, even right next to the BRI projects. <laughs> and they didn't really seem to have a full understanding of what the initiative was about. People would say, though, that there have been very noticeable changes in infrastructure development, more roads, more railways that has affected their livelihoods, improved some of their livelihoods. Others had other concerns, but it's just that many didn't associate it with the Belt and Road 
initiative. So mm-hmm. I pose this question as well to Mongolian officials and researchers and ask them, why does it seem like people don't know about this? But we have to note that in 2016, China, Mongolia and Russia inked a deal to build an economic corridor under the BRI. And the idea was to boost transport links, trade, economic cooperation. But we also have to recognize that this coincided with each country's own development plans. Um, Mm. So this was just, you know, everything coming together. People may not realize that these mega projects are part of the BRI and just see them as cooperation projects between Mm -hmm. the different countries. But another researcher I spoke to said that bilateral sensitivities may also come into play. Uh, The border between China and Mongolia has been a pain point. Mongolia relies on exporting its rich mineral exports to China, Russia. China is Mongolia's largest trading partner. During COVID, Mongolia was Mm. badly affected by border closures. And in the past, if there was any unhappiness, for example, we saw China angered by a visit by the Dalai Lama to Mongolia in 2016. It started imposing extra fees for trade into China. So that's one consideration why perhaps it's not so much in the public discourse Mm. because it's sensitive. But there's also domestic politics at play. Mongolia is a democracy. We've also seen anti-China protests as recently as 2020 over Chinese policies towards ethnic Mongolians in China. So how politicians are perceived to balance their relationship with China is also something that's being considered. Your job in this assignment was to dig deep into the Belt and Road Initiative and its impact on Mongolia, which I can imagine was actually pretty difficult when there's little information publicly available and not to mention a language barrier as well. How did you navigate that? Yeah, research was actually quite challenging because as we found out, there is no authoritative list from either country stating the overall progress Mm -hmm. of these projects. Also, as we mentioned, there's an overlap between some of these infrastructure projects under the BRI and each country's own infrastructure plans. So what is considered a BRI project what's not. These are also mega projects that are in the works for many years and with political changes, for example, in Mongolia, for instance, how the BRI is viewed and handled has changed. And people have said that's why it's been difficult to find consensus and to push forward some of these projects. Mm. There was also a delay in construction due to COVID, plus Russia's war in Ukraine brings a new dynamic to it. We had to go directly to the officials and government agencies to ask and working with our uh, producer on the ground to say, is this a BRI project? <laughs> you know, And we wanted to be sure also that we didn't just skim the surface of this story. So if you watch, we really tried our best to speak to a whole range of people from different industries, different walks of life. We, we really wanted to <laughs> paint the right picture for the viewers. Mm-hmm. So the BRI is supposed to link this landlocked country to the rest of the world. What are some of the big ticket investments that you saw firsthand? And are they making a difference? Well, for Mongolia, mining makes up about a quarter of its GDP and it's really keen to get more of its mineral exports out of the country. So doing more and doing it faster and you need transport links for that. And Mongolia's 
existing ailing infrastructure has been in much need of an upgrade. It had only one main rail line in the centre of the country through the capital Ulaanbaatar linking Russia and China. It's been working at capacity and it's seen as a limitation to increasing its trade, especially with China. So we visited a new branch line, this new railway line that started operations in November last year, stretching 227 kilometres southeast from the town of Zumbayan to Hangi, which is on the border with China. And it was built in just eight months. Wow. Just eight (laughs) months. And located in the Gobi, it is there where there are rich mineral resources and large mines as well for coal and copper, iron ore. And it's touted as a new gateway for transporting Mongolia's mineral exports into China. So transport distance is reduced, export freight volume is expected to increase and in fact stabilize at around twice their previous levels from 2025. And authorities say this will also boost income and local employment. And it's part of about 900 kilometers of new rail lines, not all considered part of the BRI, that were built and put into operation last year alone. We also had to remember that previously, Mongolia's mining exports were driven by truck drivers, long distances from the mines, through those unpaved paths, <laughs> huge trucks across the border, which can be dangerous. We did see an overturned truck at one point as well. But now with the railway, there's an option for a bulk of that journey to be done by rail. Truck drivers are still needed to do go the last mile to drive the minerals across the border because the Chinese and Mongolian railways don't link yet because of different railway gauges. But the distance is definitely shorter and truck drivers we spoke to say there are more job opportunities. Have a listen. Once the coronavirus hit and borders were closed, jobs were lost almost everywhere. Only coal was being exported. And so to sustain my livelihood, I came here to earn money. Yeah, so as we heard there, truck drivers said that, you know, there are more job opportunities now, but that also means more competition. More people are coming to this area to look for jobs. They see the potential there. Uh, But there are also other challenges involved when it comes to boosting trade. It's not just about building more roads and railways. There's also a need to improve the bottleneck at the ports. We still saw long lines of trucks. Mm-hmm. One truck driver told us there could be up to 140 to 200 <gasps> trucks lining up. Wow. And they stay in their trucks. They wait for like up to two days sometimes. Days? Two days <laughs> to cross the border checkpoints. Wow. So a lot of Chinese money pouring into Mongolia, but there's no such thing as a free lunch. After the break, we find out how much concern there is around over-reliance on Beijing. Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Chia, and I'm host of CNA's weekly news podcast, Heart of the Matter. Each week, my job is to ask the questions you have, like why is the COE so high? Why aren't singles dating? Or what's going on with the red-hot property market in Singapore? If you want the views behind the news, then tune in each week as we get to the heart of the matter. We are on the CNA and Me Listen apps and wherever you get your podcasts. Hit follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode when it drops. Welcome back. Olivia, there are critics of the BRI who say that these funds from China, they're actually a threat to recipient countries such as Mongolia, that they could be left heavily in debt. And I know you brought up this very issue of Beijing over-reliance with Mongolian officials. What did they tell you? 
Well, this has been a common criticism of China's Belt and Road Initiative, but a debt trap is something that both China and Mongolia have refuted. I spoke to Mongolia's minister, Tukpoya, who oversees port revival. I point blank asked him, is there concern about over-reliance on China? Well, he said that this reliance can't be handled by decreasing investment or cooperation with China. The market is too big. And other countries are also trading with China. And it's an opportunity for Mongolia that it can't miss. Have a listen. In order to balance the reliance, instead of decreasing cooperation with China, we aim to increase the trade with other countries. So he also then went on to say that by being part of the BRIs, hope that this will allow Mongolia to link itself to other participating countries, which would help them with their exports. And beyond that, through infrastructure like seaports in China to reach other areas further beyond its two immediate neighbours, to mm-hmm. areas like Europe and Southeast Asia, Mongolia is also very keen to be a transit corridor for goods passing through it, especially between China and Russia, as Russia has become more reliant on China for goods in the wake of sanctions following Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. But it's also been about balancing the diplomatic relationship, geopolitics comes into play, especially amid the ongoing rivalry between China and the US as well and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mongolia very careful not to be seen as taking any sides. Mm -hmm. It has this long-standing policy known as the third neighbor policy. And Mm -hmm. to counter this balance with China and Russia, we have seen increased engagement this year, especially we've seen Mongolia's prime minister not only visit China, but he also visited the United States as well. The French president, Emmanuel Macron also made his first visit to Mongolia this year. So, you know, in the past decade, Mongolia's trade with China reached $85 billion. Trade with Russia stands at about $17 billion. Trade with the U.S. is much less compared to that, but it's also about the geopolitics of it. And you mentioned earlier, Olivia, Mongolia's economy is focused on mining primarily, But you found out that they're keen to diversify, asking China to invest in agriculture, tourism as well. Can you talk to us about the ecological and humanitarian side of the BRI? Yeah, so climate change, human activity has caused the decertification of the Gobi. And sandstorms have reached across borders. It's something I've experienced too in Beijing. It's also reached South Korea. And one of the interviews that really stuck with me was with one of the herders that we spoke to. He's been a herder all his life. He even took me on his motorbike to show (laughs) me how he would gather his flock of goats. (laughs) That was quite an experience. (laughs) He, He spoke about how the pastures have been affected for his livestock, even having to buy grass to supplement the feed because of the heavy trucks that go through the area. So it really did mean a lot as well when he and his family, you know, they actually slaughtered a goat for us because they insisted that we should have a meal before we left. And it meant a lot because this is their livelihood Mm. as well, their livestock. But they were just so hospitable. And he said he will press on. He feels like he will leave this world being a herder. (laughs) And But he said he may have to look to other ways to sustain his daily life, like through planting vegetables or agriculture. And we also spoke to some others who used to be herders who said that it's just much too difficult to maintain this traditional way of life. They have become truck drivers transporting 
coal instead. Some have moved to the cities, and with rapid urbanization, particularly the capital Ulaanbaatar, where about half of the entire Mongolia population lives. Amid the harsh winter, a lot of coal is being burned to keep warm,、mm-hmm. and that has caused massive air pollution. And there are groups like People in Need who are working to address this. It worked to develop package for residents living in traditional gears in the city to have specially designed tents with better insulation for the winter months, as well as to give them electric heaters to replace the coal stoves that they use to keep warm.、Um, this is Mushi. He's the country director for People in Need Mongolia. Development, especially in、uh, infrastructure sector, is an interesting mix of both threats and opportunities. Right,、uh, so. While it promises a future that is more sustainable, more green, eco-friendly, but at the same time it threatens, in Mongolia's case, the traditional nomadic way of life that we cherish so much, or the wildlife, the natural、uh, habitat loss, and also could threaten some elements of the culture. But again, if it is managed properly and ethically, I am optimistic. So Mongolia may also be looking at. Alternatives to just purely relying on its mining industry, because its mining minister even acknowledged last year that time is running out for、mm. it to sell its thermal coal, as coal-fired plants are being phased out. Also, China, which is its big customer, has pledged to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060, even though for now it's still increasing coal capacity. It definitely has to adapt moving forward.、Mm. You traveled from Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia to Erinhot in China via an overnight train. So many modes of transport on this assignment, Olivia. What are people at the border cities saying about the BRI? Yeah, our team was saying that we took all kinds of transport <laughs> possible for this story. Well, but we took that twelve-hour overnight train ride from Ulaanbaatar to the border town in Mongolia, Zaminut. This railway. And this train system, built with help from the Soviets in the 20th century, so we're talking sleeper bunks.、Mm-hmm. The water, there's warm water, but it'll still be heated up by firewood. Really interesting experience. And cutting through the Gobi, you get to see the sunrise in the morning. But from there, from Zaminut, we then had to take a bus across the border into Erinhot, into China's Inner Mongolia. And the Erinhot port accounts for about 70% of cross-border trade. Import export cargo exceeded more than 10 million tons in the first seven months of this year, and it's seen as a key node in China's Belt and Road Initiative, facilitating trade between China, Mongolia, and Russia again as part of that economic corridor under the BRI. And we saw logistics parks with non-stop activity trucks going in and out, big and small, from all across the country, carrying items from daily necessities to building materials. Going into Mongolia, we've also seen a lot of Mongolians also traveling to this border city. We visited this market, which is frequented by Mongolian visitors. We spoke to the shopkeepers there, and they said that definitely after COVID, with the borders reopening, business has come back. But they've also said the increased transport links are a double-edged sword. Also, as the China-Europe railway、uh, began operations a decade ago. And because of the improved transport links, it says that now lots of people are not actually needing to buy things from this border city. It can just bypass Erinhot,、mm-hmm. and so that has also meant a need for them to 
transform, which is a challenge that some analysts say will take time. One researcher told me that there are possibilities or potential to cooperate in areas like green industries and ecological preservation. I follow you on Instagram and I saw your post that you shared about this assignment. Such vivid descriptions. You talk about seeing star-filled skies, meeting strangers along the way, like you say, slaughtering their livestock for you. Mm. It's now been a few weeks since you left Mongolia and I want to know what left the biggest impression on you. There are so many things that are memorable from this trip and the scenery was absolutely striking. From the steppes to the desert to the blue skies and in the night, like you said, I have never seen stars or the Milky Way like that. And for the first time, I saw that the earth is really round. <laughs> it was quite an experience. But this story will also be memorable for we spoke about the unpredictability, but we also, mm. because of that, got to see a lot more that we didn't expect. For mm. example, we interviewed the Chinese owner of a new hotel where we ended up staying, so we didn't have to stay in that tent, <laughs> uh, providing accommodation in these traditional Mongolian gears and containers in Hangi. He has lived in Mongolia for several decades and is married to a Mongolian, and he has big dreams, wanting to build cable cars, hotels, housing in the border area because he's seen development and railways being built finally in the last couple of years. COVID has driven home a need also to boost the economy, exports and otherwise. And people that we met and interviewed were extremely keen to engage because they want to you know, pick up from mm -hmm. where they left off after COVID. And I think it really drove home the point that people are betting on the future. Mm that now they're seeing development taking place. They're hoping that this will only bring better things for the economy, for their livelihoods. And it will just, they are hoping that things will be seen through moving forward from now. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see the next phase of this master plan. And hey, maybe you'll go to Mongolia in 10 years time from now for the 20th anniversary. Hopefully sooner <laughs> than that. Yeah, sooner, yeah. yeah. And maybe I'll join you. Yeah, we should. <laughs> Thank you so much, Olivia. Thank you. All right, so skip the Netflix tonight, guys. Go onto YouTube and watch Olivia's stories now that you've heard all about them. The TV version of CNA Correspondent airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Catch up with them anytime on cna.asia. The team behind this episode is Saya Wynn, Clara Ong, Crispina Robert, and me, Teresa Tang. Until next time.